Hello, I'm John Wilson. Welcome to the first in a series of podcasts from Arts Council England on the digital future for arts organisations. We'll be looking at six key topics that have been brought to light by the Digital R&D Fund for the Arts. That's a £6 million investment in digital projects across the arts sector, delivered by the Arts Council, Nesta and the Arts and Humanities Research Council in partnership. We'd very much like to hear from you on the subjects that are going to be raised in this programme. Please do tweet us using the hashtag ArtsDigital. We'll uh, read out some of the responses on next month's programme. This first podcast is about social media, user-generated content, and the influence that audiences can have on the ways exhibitions and collections are curated. In this programme, there'll be some of this. It's a project that explores the relationship between the artist, the audience, the curator, the gallery, using a digital platform. But seeing how that digital platform merges, just like the edge of a cloud, between the physical and the digital reality. Some of this. We're also seeing brands shifting their budgets from an offline medium to an online medium. And they're doing that because they understand today's consumer is very online savvy, very media savvy. They know when they're being sold to and they're getting more canny and more smart about the way in which they communicate with their audience. A little bit of this. It's yeah. particularly good with school children and they're getting instant interaction, yeah. not only on the kiosk, but you can tell that they're kind of standing around here and working together. And we discuss the answer to this question. Any arts or cultural organisation who want a digital platform are always faced with that challenge of do you just put stuff online or do you seek to genuinely engage audiences? But first, let me introduce my guests on the programme today. With me are Simon Collister, Senior Lecturer at the University of the Arts in London, Spencer Hyman, CEO and founder of Artfinder, and Charles Beckett, who leads the Arts Council's Digital R&D Fund. Welcome to all of you. Charles Beckett, let me start with you. You lead the Arts Council's project. Um, it's had an initial phase. It's now up and running in full, isn't it? It's had a pilot phase. We launched a pilot phase with £500,000 last year and funded eight projects. We're just about to launch on the 13th of July the expanded full phase, which will run over the next two and a half years. And we're contributing £6 million to this. Nesta is contributing a million pounds and the AHRC is also contributing a million pounds. And it's about encouraging arts organisations to form partnerships with technological groups. Absolutely, that's right. With with technology companies and also with researchers, what we really want to encourage is these triple collaborations so that arts organisations build much stronger links with the technology sector and also have the benefit of really rigorous academic research attached to the projects so that we can really evaluate very strongly, very rigorously, mm. what works, what doesn't work so well, what's effective and how it can be used more broadly. And Simon Collister, let me bring you in, your senior lecturer at the University of Arts in London. What are the trends, the developments at the moment that arts organisations need to be thinking about to help them along the way? I think it was maybe alluded to in um, in the opening. It's about the idea of kind of blurring the boundaries, this idea of a cloud and the, bl- the blurred boundaries between the traditional institution, maybe the art artist collective or the artist as an individual, and the wider public. And what we're seeing is kind of all the traditional bodies that, that kind of once worked maybe discreetly becoming uh, m- much more fluid 
fluid network, which opens up a huge number of possibilities and opportunities, both for funding bodies, for institutions and the artists themselves, but also a range of challenges as well in terms of how do you manage the output, how do you manage the input from the public, and what happens when you throw open arts projects or exhibitions to mm. not just the local kind of physical environment, but you know a much more wider virtual, potentially international environment. What happens then? How do you manage it? And uh, Spencer Hyman, you are the uh, the CEO, the founder of ArtFinder. Just a quick word, first of all, about ArtFinder. What do you do? We help people improve their lives by trying to get more art into it, by helping them visit art in person to go and see it, to enjoy art online, and then also to start buying art. Right. So you want us to become more hands-on, but you're you're hoping that the social media technology will enable us, will empower us then? We would like to use the social technologies. We'd like to use all the new technologies and digital devices to get people more in a habit of art so that just as people read every day, just as people listen to music every day, we'd like you to be getting into art every day. And one of the issues we're going to be discussing during this program is whether we are ready uh, to, to, to make that leap from being consumers to, to becoming curators. Do we have the ability? Do, can we be bothered to get involved at this level? Let's hear another view. I head up the team which looks after research, analytics and creative strategy at the BBC. That's Holly Goodyear, head of audiences for BBC Future Media, who uh, wrote a paper called The Participation Choice, which builds a picture of how people in the UK participate in digital media today. It suggests that more than three quarters of those who are connected online are active participants. So to set the scene, 77% of the UK online population are active, 23% are passive. Within that, we've identified four types of participation. At one end, there's intense participation, that's 17%, and that is the the type of participation that's characterised by more effort or time or greater public expression, so blogging, reviewing, etc. Passivity speaks for itself, but in the big centre is the 60% of participation that we class as easy participation. This to us has been one of the most fascinating changes in online behaviour we've seen in recent years, which is essentially saying vast swathes of the population now do create and contribute online in the way that others can see, but do so in very light easy, simple, almost frivolous ways. So to put it into context, to be online now and not be part of a social network is seen as an unusual thing. Many years ago, despite being a massive digital media geek, I would have never uploaded my photos online. I would have needed basic coding skill. It felt like an awful lot of time. Now it just feels like a really simple experience and something that my friends would be quite disappointed if I didn't do. I think that By understanding this range of behaviour, so intense participation, passivity and then easy participation, that we're able to try and craft experiences that best suit one, the type of people we are and how we want to relate to the world, but also suit the objectives we might have as organisations or arts organisations as a whole. Spencer Hyman, let me uh, turn to you first of all for a response to that, because you were saying that one of your aims is to get us more engaged. What Holly Goodyear is suggesting there is that what 77% of people who are online are active, they're blogging, they're tweeting. That's pretty high, isn't it? It's fantastically high, and I think it's also fantastic that people are using these technologies in the ways they are, and I think she's absolutely right. But what's interesting 
in say the last 20 years, the arts industry's had a harder time. Unlike music, for example, where it's really easy to share music, it's been comparatively difficult to share your appreciation for what you've enjoyed seeing at museums, what you've enjoyed seeing at galleries. What's fantastic about things, for example, like Culture Cloud now is it's incredibly simple to say what you like. And you're just basically using old habits like collecting postcards, but via new technologies like smartphones, which can take images, and using those to share. So you go and get two great impacts, one of which is you yourself get involved in a new way. But secondly, through the social networks, you can just share it in ways that individual postcards could never do. Simon Collister, does that chime with the way that you have been looking at this area? Is it harder to get people involved in social media looking at the arts than it is in music or other forms of entertainment? I think the key issue is partly the technology and on the flip side of that, it's the behaviour and it's the understanding people's motivations. But it's about maybe looking at some of the data and the insights that people are doing when they are using social media and the things they're talking about and the things they're visiting and sharing to understand a much more kind of nuanced picture of the kinds of content of the art that, that we know kind of people want to participate in and perhaps helping curate exhibitions using that insight. Yeah, and Charles, I don't know if you're going to have the answer to this, but I I suppose it raises the question of how you define active participation, cultural participation using social media, retweeting something that an arts organisation has put on a Twitter feed. Does that make you an active participant in the social media? Well, I think it's a very good question. And I think one of the things is that the conventions in the ways in which people use these technologies or these platforms is evolving. I think to really understand the complexity of those behaviours is quite a long-term project. It's something that we can learn about by experimenting and researching in quite a rigorous way. Kind of digging a bit deeper, I think, Mm. is the next stage, and that will really help organisations to understand and get into a more interesting relationship with their audience. Well, let's look at a case study, a specific example. A moment ago, Spencer mentioned the Culture Cloud. And this is a project which uh, began at Nottingham's New Art Exchange, uh, a venue that's been using social media in a particularly innovative way when it comes to curating art. Culture Cloud is a project designed to discover and showcase new artistic talent in the UK. Artists submit work online to a panel of judges, all of them professional curators. They then select a long list of 100. Those works on the list are then exhibited online and are voted on via Facebook by members of the public. The 40 most popular artworks will then be exhibited at the Nottingham New Art Exchange before an overall winner is awarded £2,000 and a possible solo show at the gallery. Skinder Hundal, Chief Executive at the New Art Exchange in Nottingham, explains more. So Culture Cloud is very much about identifying new talent using a digital platform, but engaging audiences using social media to curate, vote and like, and then inform who enters our gallery space, which is really, really uh, a challenge for a space that's often curated. So we're in many ways engaging audiences to take control of the artistic process. So it's experimental in that sense. We recognise the fact that artists are looking to sustain a living and venues like ourselves and public spaces need to understand how that commerciality sits within our space. Not so that we're controlled by it, but so that we can inform it, in fact, and provide a sustainable future for new talent that's often not seen or captured. And the digital platform, I guess, provides that accelerated space for artists, audiences and curators to connect in that moment in time. So it's creating and generating an interest and enthusiasm within networks that may not normally connect with arts 
Skinder Hundal of the New Art Exchange in Nottingham. Incidentally, since that piece was recorded in May, where they had 11,000 votes in the first week, they've now had just over 25,000 votes and counting. Spencer, your company, Art Finder, is the technical partner behind the Culture Cloud project. What are you hoping to achieve by involving audiences in this curating process? So one of the great things about being able to put art online is that it becomes very, very shareable. So to sort of use an analogy, you almost create a radio for art. The way that musicians can have their music widely listened to is it gets put on radio. There really isn't an equivalent to that for art. Then I think the second point is, is that it's a very good way of actually sort of getting different insights as to what different sorts of people are interested in. And this is something which, for example, any sort of arts institution, whether it be a museum or a gallery, is fascinated by. So we can literally tell you who is looking at and who's interested in what sort of art and in what sort of museums, what the demographics are, how they're using it, what they're doing with, which is a phenomenally powerful and useful tool. What about the, how do you measure the success in terms of the, the cost benefit for a gallery or an arts institution? So I think you have to start by saying what's the benefit that they are after. And I think in general, the benefits are they want increased exposure for their artists. Um, They want increased understanding of their artists and they also want increased sales of their artists. So I think, you know, it's too early to say yet on the sales because we haven't yet started to sort of move into making the limited edition prints or to actually selling those artworks. But certainly in terms of the increased exposure, there are 25,000 people who've actually actively voted in the process and many, many more have actually looked at these images as well. The aim is not so much to give an alternative to actually going to go and see the art in person. Hmm. The aim is to actually enhance it and make you aware of it and make you understand it and appreciate and share it more. So, I mean, you know, you always should go and see the art or see the object in person. That's absolutely fantastic. But it's, it's how do you get more of the narrative? How do you get more of the story? And I think that's where, you know, actually giving people their own abilities to tell the different stories and to find out the different parts, that's where it really sort of comes into its own. Well, on this subject, we uh, spoke earlier to Harry Simbler, founder of Hot Cherry, the digital PR and social media specialist company. He told us about which content works best. In terms of what makes good content for digital PR and social media campaigns, there are a number of different types of content that we always try to go for. So, for example, having something exclusive always helps because it's an opportunity to create new and interesting dialogue about a particular type of content. Another type of content that works really well across digital PR and social media platforms is the type of content that you know intrinsically will get people talking about it. So it could be something controversial, it could be something topical, but something that really fires the public's imagination and gets them engaged and interacting. Harry Simbler, founder of uh, Hot Cherry Digital PR Company. Simon, um Twitter is a force of collective power, isn't it? It's all about the power of we. It's very hard for corporations and organisations to harness that. But which give us an example of well, some somewhere where it has worked very successfully. Well, there's been a really actually it's it's kind of front of mind because I've I've seen this in the last few weeks. But there's a filmmaker who has been trying to raise money. So crowdfunding is kind of one of the big buzzwords of the moment, and it's often perceived as being you know great social media, all these people, low overheads. It's really easy to make money. But the reality is it's 
it's not. I mean, you know, I've seen quite a few art projects that have sought crowdfunded outcomes and very few have actually succeeded. And the one that I've picked up the last few weeks has been an attempt to make the spirit level. So there's the book called The Spirit Level, which looks at inequality within society and kind of quality of life outcomes. Really compelling book. And what was really interesting was that rather than just thinking, I want to make my film and creating a page on Kickstarter, which is one of these kind of crowdfunding platforms. Mm. They actually kind of went out and, and having spoken to them since, found out that they did a lot of really nice upfront planning. So the filmmaker went out and mapped out all the possible permutations of online communities and kind of big blogs and collective websites that would be a potential audience for the film. So they could identify the potential audience using social media and then target specific messages and also specific content. So although there was no budget for the film to be made in its entirety, what the filmmaker could do was do kind of short vox pops and talking heads with the book's authors and build this kind of much more emotive call to action and then, you know, seed and distribute this content in the right communities, link them back to the platform. And by finding and targeting the right people in advance of the film even being made, they now have a fully funded film. So you ask the audience what they want to see, then ask them to pay for it as well. Well, yeah, exactly. Or, or, you know, saying we're passionate about this set of issues. We think you might be too. If you are, please get involved. And that then has kind of not only given them funds, but also built a really kind of significant online community of people who will then go and actually market the film on, on their behalf as well. Well, don't forget, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the programme, we'd very much like to hear from you on the subjects raised in this programme. Please do tweet us using the hashtag ArtsDigital. Well, here's a little experiment we did, not scientific. These are people who were visiting Nottingham's new art exchange. We asked them whether and how they use social media. No, I don't tweet. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not really that comfortable with it not at all now i felt more connected before the internet actually i used to pick up more information from shops and just flyers i'm on the mailing list for the new art exchange and i check the website for here and the contemporary and other places occasionally but not through social media if you talk about facebook and things like that wouldn't be my routine to look to the arts at all no i tend to be more attracted to print media as a way of getting into things or word of mouth not in terms of motivation and like willingness to find out what's on in the arts. I'd proactively do a Google search, for example, look for things myself, pick up leaflets. People have misunderstood the meaning of communication if Twitter is sufficient. I'm a bit of a McLuhanist where Facebook and Twitter are concerned. The arts don't fit those medias, or shouldn't. The arts are more important than that. Now we ask the same question on Twitter itself. Should the public be able to influence what art goes on display? And these are some of the responses that we got. From Dave at Watergate Bay, we have, isn't it called public art for a reason? Be careful, we'll end up with Vetriano at the National. He's talking about Jack Vetriano at the National Gallery. From Tony Eccles, only possible if the public know exactly what art is being held by all institutions, referring there to the fact that a lot of art galleries keep works of art in storage. Arty Globe tweets, We think so. After all, it's for the public to enjoy. If art is in an exhibition, they choose to go to see it, not forced to look. And from Avant Gardening, we have, But how do people know what they want to see unless they've experienced it? 
Let's get a couple of uh, responses from the guests. Um, Spencer, your responses, first of all, to the Vox Pops that you heard there recorded in Nottingham's New Art Exchange. So I think they're very representative. I think there are a large number of people who aren't on Facebook, who aren't on Twitter. Mm. But I suspect that they probably have an email account and they probably do use the internet in one way or another. Simon, is there a disconnect here? Uh, We heard those people at the gallery who were engaging in person with the arts, turning up, paying their bus ticket to get there, whatever, uh, saying, no, I don't use social media. And yet there are thousands of replies to the question about who do we vote for at the same gallery. I think it's quite easy to see, that, 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 or at least kind of to believe there's disconnect. And, you know, in some instances, there may well be disconnect. But I think it's kind of, it's a bit dangerous to think of, again, kind of, online versus offline or kind of, you know, um, internet users versus non-internet users. I mean, I think as Spencer's already kind of alluded to, those people may well use the internet in some capacity or they may use, I know one of the kind of, um, one of the ladies mentioned, um, Googling stuff. I mean, you know, what point does people on social media tweeting or, you know, talking about, you know, posting stuff on Facebook about local exhibitions then influence Google search results? So she may not use Facebook or Twitter, but if she Googles what's happening in Nottingham art, she may well get influenced by other people using social media, a list of kind of uh, exhibitions at the New Art Exchange. So, you know, it's easy to kind of think there might be disconnect, but if you start to kind of scratch beneath the surface, I think you will start to see a lot more interconnection than you'd you'd imagine. And Charles Beckett, this is an issue that I'm going to move on to in in a minute, but just taking you back to one of these tweeted responses, how do people know what they want to see unless they have experienced it? Um, well, I it think, is a chicken and egg situation, isn't it? Uh, I think that's a very good question. And I think, we'll, you know, you'll come on to talk in one of our other podcasts about distribution and exhibition. One of our ambitions, partly through this fund, but also more broadly, is to make sure that more publicly funded work certainly is available and, and is digitally available and accessible to people. That's something that we're trying to do through the organisations that we fund, but also with some partners like the BBC, where we've worked on the Space Project recently, and I know that it's one of ArtFinder's goals is to, is to make people aware of what's held mm. where, how they can go and visit it. And I think the, the person who sent in that message has a point in the sense if you don't know what's there in the first place, it's hard to know what you think about it. But we do want to make visible more of the work that we've funded. Well, let's drill down a bit further on that question. We've heard about... Um, audiences curating temporary exhibition spaces. But what about the ways in which audiences might curate or interpret the permanent collections of galleries and museums? An example of this in action is uh, at the Imperial War Museum in London. Its social interpretation project is about applying social media concepts to museum collections. Carolyn Royston, head of digital media at the Imperial War Museum, and Claire Ross, a researcher at uh, University College London, explain the project further. So we're going to take you to the most popular social interpretation kiosk. So there are six digital kiosks in the Family Wartime Gallery. This is one of them. This is an example of a gas mask for a baby. And the point of the kiosk is we're trying to get people to think about how that object relates to them and their own personal experience. So in terms of the gas mask, we're asking how do we protect our children? So this is a kiosk that is built to purposely be situated next to the object that we are trying to get people to engage with. It's as integrated into the design as we could make it. The screen that you see is a tablet, just like a regular iPad tablet. So on the kiosk itself, you've got the museum's voice. So in essence, it encompasses a traditional museum label. 
but also asks a question. So what is your immediate reaction to learning that babies were put into these objects? And then there's more contextual information about what it is and what it was used for. And then you can go across, and this is the visitor voice, where we're encouraging visitors to write their own response to that question that we just asked. And you can scroll up and down to see what other people have written. So this comment I really, really like. It's by Mabel. It's relating to the gas mask. And it's strange to think that this was not so long ago. I can remember the war as a teenager. It only seems like yesterday. And tomorrow I celebrate my 82nd birthday. Now that, for, for me, makes doing this so worthwhile. We're getting really, really engaged comments. Put, put your name in there so we know who you are. What do you think? Do you think that would protect a baby from the gas? Yeah. Do you? Why? Because then they wouldn't get hurt, would they? Because it, it, then it's had a full body suit. Right. So why do you think they put in a full body suit and not just a little mask on their face? Because they're tiny, mini babies. And what is the thing at the side for? The pump? Why do you think the pump is at the side? So that mums can pump it. And what's going to go in there? Air. Good. Well done. It's really good, isn't it? Yeah, and it's nice to see one because we keep seeing them on their screens at school. Never seen one in for real. What we're finding is that as well as people commenting on the objects you know, and getting a certain amount of nonsense, we're also finding that people are commenting about their experience of the museum as a whole, so using it almost like visitor feedback. Well, I don't think it's a really good idea. The strength of museums like this have always been being interactive and it keeps it interactive in the modern way that kids interact with each other. Yeah, no, I'm a bit sceptical about it, but I guess it's kind of lives or dies based on how well it's used and if it's used well like that then I think it will work, work well it's just whether or not once the novelty runs out whether people I think maybe people do it for the first couple of exhibitions they see but maybe won't do it for everything but I guess it doesn't really matter if everyone does it to kind of one or two it works well it brings a stationary piece to life but maybe I think it might be more useful to have one central point that covers a few different exhibitions or artefacts and things like that so maybe having one for every single one might be a bit too much yep too many museums are a bit dry and boring this really brings it to life yeah one of the things of letting visitors write whatever they want on the gallery floor is that they will write whatever they want on the gallery floor. So we're getting some really engaged comments that relate directly to the object or the question being asked, but we also get some nonsense comments. So there's one that is just pretty much letters, random letters in a row. And that for us isn't very useful. However, it is showing engagement with digital technology, which again is a positive thing. But this is when the social moderation comes in and you can remove them from view. By pressing the remove button, a visitor removes that comment from view. It then goes into a pot and a member of staff will then review those comments and if it is deemed inappropriate it will remain in the pot, it won't come back onto the gallery floor. However, if it's deemed safe or appropriate then it will have a note attached to it but that a museum member of staff has read and understood the comment and it will then go back onto the gallery floor. Carolyn Royston and Claire Ross from London's Imperial War Museum uh, with comments from some of their visitors. Simon Collister, as we heard there, 
you have to be policing what people are writing as they're responding. Hopefully, they're responding in a very generous and engaged way. But it, it is a system that could be open to abuse, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, uh, you know, there are kind of different ways of policing, you know, social content, or I like to think of this kind of project as kind of creating social knowledge. And one of the best ways to police, if you like, it, is to rely on the self-policing of the community, which is why it's actually really heartening to hear that they actually aren't necessarily pre-moderating comments that are being left. They're actually relying on the visitors to report and flag mm. that. I mean, that, that's good because it demonstrates that the museum is trusting and it may work in the museum context, maybe less so for perhaps contentious organisations or brands, for example. And but, I guess that's the way that Wikipedia works, isn't it? That if people write something stupid or libelous, it gets taken down because it gets reported. It's a self-policing operation. Absolutely. And that, and that kind of plays to the power of these kind of involved communities. And, you know, I think the last study I saw suggested that nonsense inserts into Wikipedia articles are kind of, you know, amends within like 30 seconds or something. So I think this is a really interesting project and I'd love to see more of it in other installations as well. And potentially looking at ways of sucking in much more wider virtual insight and feedback and building up kind of much more social layers around artefacts and Charles Beckett, one of the phrases that we hear as part of this new digital deal between users and corporations or organisations is radical trust. What does that exactly mean? The value of authenticity in social media is very powerful, I think. Simon was talking earlier about brands rather than having a kind of corporate Twitter or Facebook page actually having individuals within their organisation who are then able to have their own personal accounts and they talk about certain things. That requires a degree of trust from the organisation. Mm. They have to be on then, message. Well, well, no, but in a sense, I think the value is that they're not always on message and that, and that therefore they're not perceived as simply being ambassadors for the brand. But that requires a degree of letting go of control from the kind of traditional marketing operation and mm. the brand's side. Then on the other hand, in terms of moderating or responding to people's comments, I, I think, you know, I'm much more comfortable with the idea of community moderation, which is a kind of consensual approach rather than people kind of simply removing comments which they disagree with or don't like, which, you know, touches on censorship issue. So again, there's a degree of courage or openness one has to have, I think, as an institution or an organisation to really see the benefits of this transparency and, and responsiveness to your audience without being heavy-handed in the way that you you moderate or try to control your messages. This is the, We're talking about the communal approach to the response of visitors, but let's take it the, the stage further. Spencer, I suppose this leads ultimately, if you're giving far more of a say, far more power to the visitor, in the end the visitor will be deciding what will be on display. Does this not take the primacy, you know, the skill and all of the endeavour away from the curator who is paid to do this sort of thing? I don't think so, because I think you will always have a desire for narrative. But I think having said that, I think aristocrats very, very rarely vote for democracy. And I think the great thing that we've got at the moment is the tools to actually get democracy coming into the art world as it came into the music world, as it came into literature and everything else. And that's phenomenal. I think have we yet found out exactly how to make it work? No, but we're definitely getting there and we've got lots of really great people managing it. I think what Karen and her team did at the Imperial War Museum is fantastic. It is state-of-the-art. So I think there's a lot of expertise in how you do that. But I think the main aim of it is to try and democratise it because then people will feel more involved and will feel more passionate and more enthusiastic. But also in democracy, you do naturally vote for leaders and you do mm. want some people to tell you and to help you and to lead you. That's what happened in Culture Cloud, of course, because you, you threw it open to a general public vote, but then you had to whittle down the long list. Uh, and that was done by professional 
curators. Yeah, and that's the way that we, we help Culture Cloud decide how it wanted to sort of draw the two lines. But I think the key point is, is that you can have many, many more voices. And in democracy, people feel much more involved. And that's what we're trying to do with the arts too. I mean, it is about democratizing it. It is about trying to get people more involved. But having said that, they also want to have certain people's views who they will listen to, mm. whether that be Neil McGregor talking about the history of the world in 100 objects, whether it be, you know, David Escurgeon talking about the age of bronze. People vote and they go and, you know, see the Hockney. They go to the Royal Academy. They want that to be curated. But the great thing is, is that it's the individuals making the decisions and feeling empowered. Well, this is the key issue in the question of how museums should function and serve audiences, what role should social media and technology play? And are we capable of helping to curate the shows we go to as visitors? Theo Peterson from MTM London, who worked as a research consultant at the Imperial War Museum project, explains how initial research may prove that we aren't. Some people are also sceptical about the idea of, well, firstly, of having digital technology in the museum. They felt there was a risk that it could detract from the overall experience or end up trivialising the subject matter. There was a concern amongst a few of the interviewees that a lot of the comments would end up being banal and not particularly interesting. And they said, you know, why would I want to read what some random person has written about the subject? So that in that sense, there was more of an implicit trust in the museum's voice to provide kind of interesting and meaningful commentary on the objects in question. And if we look at this question specifically in the world of art, should the audience be able to influence what art is on display? Well, definitely, especially at a facility like this. You can't say you're representing communities. The community has no influence or say um, what happens here. Yeah, I think so. It can be a bit elitist on occasion, so I'm all for that, yeah. I think that people should be consulted because it's their gallery. But if they're making all the decisions, then they might not know about things that are happening at perhaps sort of art specialists do know about. Oh, definitely. You know, in terms of influencing it, I think art should be about who we are, what we are, what our aspirations are. From my point of view as an art centre, it will fall flat on its face if it doesn't engage with the community. It's essential. I've got no problem with the uh, public influencing what goes on in arts, the arts. Usually that happens by them either turning up or not turning up, doesn't it? And interestingly, these were the same people who were somewhat negative on the original question of engagement with social media. I think that there is room for all types of curatorial frameworks. And having a framework which gives ownership to the public, I think is a good thing. It's an exciting opportunity for the public to, to have meaning about the choices they make with regards to art. It's about audiences having a richer and deeper experience as a consequence of this. I think the curator will always, always have a role because they, it's their job. They, they instigate, they research and they bring things to the fore that wider society just hasn't got time to do. Well, let's engage in a bit of crystal ball gazing. Simon Collister, can you predict the, f the future in terms of the way that we're going to be using our devices, our personal handheld devices, in the galleries of the future? Well, that's a really good question. It's all, I'm always kind of a little bit dubious about predicting what technology is going to appear mm. or what kind of transformations we're going to see. But I think whatever we do see is going to be focused around uh, three really unfortunate syllables, so, mo, low, so social, mobile and local. So it's going to be much more about pulling information that's relevant and timely to you at any one specific physical location. So, you know, perhaps Googling something to do in a particular part of a city and what you get is much more contextual information about where you're stood, what's nearby, what's around you. Also 
also based on what other people are doing and seeing. So perhaps real-time feedback and insights around a particular exhibition. Yeah, and, and Spencer Hyman, for an arts organisation to engage with social media takes some kind of financial commitment in itself even if you're just paying somebody to be tweeting. And it's it's hard for some organisations to second-guess which area they should be moving into. I mean, Facebook is big, but, I mean, you know, MySpace was big a few years ago. Where's that gone? I think the way to think about it, though, is to sort of um, think whether or not organisations want to be what we sort of call black holes or suns. And what I mean by that is, do you expect everything to come to you or do you want to put it out there and let your fans share it and become a sun which sort of lights up the planets and the universes around that. And I think the secret is not to get so hung up with the different technologies, Mm. but actually be very, very aware of the fact that you should get the content out to where the audiences are. I mean, in one of those last vignettes, the last phrase was, how do we get people to turn up or not? That's the key question, and that's the key challenging facing the arts, because it doesn't have anything like radio. So I think, you know, if you, if you think about what the new technologies are going to be, it's worth looking at two other industries. It's worth, first of all, just thinking a little bit about what's happened to books in the last 10 years. So the first thing which happened to books was Amazon emerged with the ability to sell online. And it worked phenomenally well because it was easy to search, it was easy to find stuff, and they built this amazing ecosystem. And then everybody was saying, well, we're never going to read on the PCs. And then along came the iPad and along came the Kindle, and everybody's now reading on that. So the interesting thing for art is that it's never had anything like a Kindle. It's never had anything like radio. It's never had anything like the iPod. But it sort of now does because with the iPad, it actually starts to give it a device which in no way does it make redundant going to the museum, but it certainly helps you figure out if you should be going or not. And it's back to the point that you were making about, you know, the SOMO low. It's basically, you can find people who otherwise wouldn't know about something there and you can get them to share it and you need the image. Just to go back, you know, as I was hearing um, Carolyn talking about the the gas mask, I desperately wanted to see it. Yeah. And I guess what you're saying there for, or what you're encouraging the arts organisations to do is to not to worry about what's coming around the corner, but to embrace what is here Experiment. And now. Experiment. And don't worry about the cost. I mean, don't try and control it yourself. Don't be a black hole. Don't try and basically <laughs> suck it all in and try and do it all yourself. Take advantage of what the Arts Council is doing, which is basically encouraging you to go out and experiment. Don't necessarily spend... I mean, well, don't spend capital because that's not what you're supposed to be doing. But just to extend your black hole and bright sun metaphor, you have to really know which solar system to hang out in, though, don't you? I'm not sure it's the solar system. I think it's a question of just don't try and keep it all under lock and key. Let your fans have it and let your fans experiment with it and let people experiment and play with it. So this is a longer game that arts organisations should be playing. We're not talking about short-term campaigning here. Any arts organisations which want to embrace and hopefully benefit from social media and user-generated content have to be in it for the long term. It's not simply a case of turning on the tap of digital PR and social media for a month and then turning it off and then turning it back on when it suits. It really is a question of maintaining and opening up a dialogue with the public and then maintaining that conversation for the long haul because these are the type of relationships that the public are used to having with brands these days and it's very much an interactive three-dimensional type of relationship, whereas in the past it's been very much a passive relationship for the public where they were really spoken to by the brand and dictated to in terms of what the brand messages were. Nowadays, the public very much expect to have a two-way relationship with brands, um, to be able to engage with them, and for it to be a a much more of an engaging personal experience for consumers. So in terms of brand requirements, 
digital PR and social media is very much a long-term concern for businesses. That's Harry Simler from the Hot Sherry Digital PR Company. Charles Beckett, as the person who is overseeing the Arts Council's Digital Research and Development Fund, you would echo that, wouldn't you? You have to look to the long game, to the long term. Well, yeah, I, th- I think, first of all, I think that social media requires some cultivation. It requires effort. It, it takes time to cultivate these relationships with your audience, and you have to be prepared to invest effort in that. But if you're a a chief executive of an arts organisation or a trustee or a chairman, you're going to be wanting to know that this stuff works. Mm. I mean, how do you quantify the effect of social media? If there's an exhibition on in your gallery, you can put posters up around the town on the tube. It can be discussed on the radio and and television. What's to say that that message is not getting through far more effectively, the old channels of communication, than these, you know, whizzy new technological endeavours? I think increasingly we have quite sophisticated tools for for actually measuring and and, and assessing what the kind of returns on this social media investment are. There are analytics packages. A lot of them are free and easy to integrate with people's systems. The question is learning how to use them and setting yourself some clear objectives. What are the things you want to achieve? What what is the kind of rate of return or or Mm. click-through that you want to achieve on a particular online ad. From a promotional marketing perspective and that that's the, has always been the perennial question there's the, there's the famous quotation about I know 50% of my advertising works I just don't know which half. You know so so how do you know that people have seen a billboard at a bus station have then gone to the gallery? You know <laughs> you, you're never going to know that unless you do that wider contextual research but I mean just in terms of kind of perhaps future future gazing going back to that you know one of the biggest kind of trends that I think we're seeing in terms of marketing and PR sector is is the emergence of what people are now terming big data you know all the different ways people are sharing information talking about exhibitions, visiting galleries, checking in, um, you know, be able to kind of combine that into one big kind of, uh, you know, if you like, dashboard or kind of report to understand a lot of that wider context is is becoming ever more powerful and ever, ever more possible. And I think, and we're doing research into this at the moment, I think one of the biggest skills gaps within marketing departments at the moment is having people who are both marketeers, but also kind of, you know, trained quantum qual researchers who can understand what these numbers are and understand what they mean in terms of kind of future marketing. There's certainly big potential there, but mm. we're not quite at that point that we can fully maximise that. And Spencer Hyman, a final thought from you. Uh, social media is good for the arts. Agree? Absolutely agree. It's great for the arts because it encourages more people to get involved, it encourages more people to visit, encourages more people to become enthusiastic, and ultimately it encourages more people to start buying art, and that improves their lives. Well, there you go. Thank you very much. We'd like to hear from you on the subjects raised in this programme. Please do tweet us using the hashtag ArtsDigital, and we'll read out some of the responses on next month's programme. My thanks to guests Simon Collister, Spencer Hyman, and Charles Beckett. The Digital R&D Fund for the Arts is open for applications until the 30th of December 2013. To find out more information or to apply, visit artsdigitalrnd.org.uk. You've been listening to a podcast from Arts Council England. Don't forget to share and bookmark these podcasts on the Arts Council iTunes channel or at the Arts Digital R&D website, artsdigitalrnd.org.uk.